I'm standing on a mountaintop in southern Turkey, looking at the apex of another mountain. I'm eye-level with all of these different peaks. The sky is a blazing blue, and although it's summertime, the earth is cool up here. I'm surrounded by pine trees and grapevines, crowned with light by the high mountain sun. My job here is simple, just sliced tomatoes. They'll later be dried, stuffed into a jar, smothered with olive oil and spices. My volunteer position here on this mountain is filled with repetitive tasks, filling jars with jam, picking up pine cones, skimming bugs out of a pool. Life is so easy here. It's a quiet existence. I could stay forever if I wanted. And as I sliced tomato after tomato, I gingerly laid them on a lattice wooden dryer, decorating it with red, wet ovals. I think about how beautiful all of this is and how lucky I am to be here. It unbraided me. Then a thought pops into my head that I can't take back. And it was that not everyone gets to do this. Not everyone is so lucky. And at 22, you're pretty damn lucky to have seen so much beauty that this world has to offer. I soberly swallowed this idea like someone who's been binge drinking all night and has had their first sip of water. I could easily continue living this life, avoid all the ugly, all the aggression, all of the hate that swarms the earth, that defines other people's existence. I felt the warm breeze wrap around my body and whistle through the pine trees that were shading me. I clearly had a lot of time to think. Okay, I have to see the other side. I can't just isolate myself from it. Because what if I was living in a bubble? What if the world actually wasn't rainbow sprinkles and daffodils like I thought it was? I needed to find this out. Six months later, when I came back to the States, I applied for AmeriCorps. I wanted to give back to my country. America prides itself in being the best in the world, but it's evident that we have our own slew of issues. And I figured that with my psych and gender degree, I would eventually end up in some kind of social work. So six months after that, I got stationed in Portland, Oregon, which is the opposite side of the country from my home. If you folded a map of America down the central and mountain time zone, my home and Portland would have matched. I couldn't have been farther away from where I was raised while still being in my own country. But I was excited about my vocation, which I know is a weird thing to say when it comes to social work, but I was really passionate about it. I was stationed to work at an HIV day center and supported individuals who are HIV positive. We weren't an overnight shelter, but anyone who was confirmed HIV status could benefit from our services. We provided hot meals, laundry, clothing, donations, showers, and overall community support. I was the events and activities coordinator. I put on weekly activities and organized larger events throughout the year for our clients. I was to be the community glue. Most of our clients were male and middle-aged. The vast majority of them were gay and lived through the AIDS epidemic. On a typical day, the only other women in the room were my coworkers. And my first day was a hurricane of learning names, being sized up from clients, and just trying to ride that specific chaos that happens when you enter a community as a stranger. It was... 
the most emotionally exhausting year of my life. I was living under the poverty level with seven other people in one house. I was working in a basement of a church where I would only see daylight through the tiny windows lining the ceiling, and I'd watch the feet of passerbys walk along. My main form of transportation was my bike, not because I enjoyed it, but because it was free. On average, it rains about half of the year in Portland. So most of these bike rides were done through sunglasses to block out water and squinted eyes. The bottoms of my pants were always dirty from the wheels spitting the rainfall and dirt back up. I would come to work with a moistened face and a change of clothes. Taking the bus seemed like a luxury. But it wasn't the physical labor or the lack of sun that was the hardest. It was the stories. The stories of my clients who had come through so much. Coming out as gay in the 60s and 70s, and then being HIV positive was even more detrimental. They were rejected by their families and also had to struggle with survivor's guilt. A lot of them were homeless or struggled with housing instability and then had to pay for the cocktail of medicine. Some of them struggled with drug addiction or were just lonely. I swallowed these stories whole. They hurt like a stomach ache after eating too fast. I didn't know how to digest them. I found myself becoming more emotionally distant, learning how to compartmentalize my emotions just to get through the day. I couldn't fathom living the lives that they had. In the beginning, I wanted to quit every single day. This was too much. I was burning the edges of my theoretical worldview. That the world was kind, filled with strangers that wanted to help you. That our instinct for compassion is stronger than pain. But their emotional baggage was heavier than any backpack I had used to travel the world. I felt inadequate to the needs that they really had. To be heard, to be held, to be loved. All I was doing was encouraging them to decorate pumpkins and serving them beef stroganoff. This wasn't what I had signed up for, except it was exactly what I had signed up for. I needed to remind myself that I had wanted this. I literally volunteered to be here. I needed to peek outside of the liberal daylilies and sunshine dome that I had been raised in and could always go back to. I was seeing an upside down world that so many people live in. Making the world better is so hard, if not impossible. It was sticky and mean and heartbreaking and maddening. But I needed to keep going because I made a commitment to these men. Today on the episode, we're inspired. We will talk to people who were galvanized by their travels to make the world a better place. Some of us find larger callings outside of our homes and bring it back looping in new ideas and people together. From creating communities to supporting local businesses, from spreading education to fostering new skills, we will talk to individuals who learn how to create dynamic systems that strengthen the individual and global community without the attitude of being saviors. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go.
I still needed to believe that we have an instinct for kindness, that helping others is in our blood. When we think of all the terrible things that happen in the world, there are at least three more acts of kindness that happen at the same time. The little things, holding the door open for someone, making a joke with your barista, helping someone carry a stroller up the subway stairs. These are ways that we can make everyone else's day a little bit easier. But kindness isn't as entertaining and doesn't make the news as easily. But if we weren't kind to each other, we wouldn't be the apex species. I believe that helping does come naturally to us, but some cultivate it more intentionally. This is the kind of family that Ray grew up with, a peaceful one, literally. Ray was born in the Peace Corps when his parents were volunteers. I was born in Cebu City in the Philippines. My dad's American, my mom's Filipina, but at 11 months old, I moved to Turkey and I spent the next 15 years in Istanbul. So technically, English is my third language. My first word was Turkish. I said something in Tagalog after that, and then I said something in English. I've obviously known about the Peace Corps my whole life. I like to joke it was my second time in the Peace Corps because my dad was actually still a Peace Corps volunteer when I was born. So I like to say the first 11 months of my life, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. and So I've known about the Peace Corps most of my life. Giving back has always been important in my family. Again, my, my parents did a lot of volunteering activities. My, my mom started, when we were in Turkey, an organization to help Filipino maids who were being brought to the country and abused, that they took their passport away, stopped paying them. She started an organization like that, and I would help her out as a kid helps out. It's been kind of in my family for years. My dad grew up in Rhodesia and Africa. And again, he's blonde, white, Irish guy. My grandfather and my grand, you know, his sisters, they were born grew up in China. So nobody in my family has actually grown up in the United States. A lot of them come from a either volunteer or missionary background on the academic side of things. So kind of giving back has been part of my family for like 100 years. It was just I, I assumed giving back was what you do, just like going to college after high school was what you do. Once you're able to pay for your rent and the rest of it, and you have free time, you have to give back to society, right? Ray grew up, got a job in computers, which he liked, but knew that there was something missing. A piece of him wasn't being satisfied. At the time, I was a team lead in an IT, in an IT department of a Fortune 500 company. My boss invited me to a commemoration of another team lead who was getting his plaque for either 40 or 50 years of dedicated service to the company. I remember going for the plaque. They had the cheese plate, you know, with the grapes on it and all that kind of stuff. And they gave him a nice plaque and maybe a watch. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, that could be me 50 years from now, right? Where I've been sitting in the same cube doing the same thing. And... Not that there's anything wrong with that. And I think for a lot of people, that's great. I'm sure he was able to, you know, his kids went to school. He was comfortable. He has a house. But it wasn't what I was looking for. That scared me so much that literally when I went back to my desk after that, I went on to PeaceCorps.gov and I applied for the Peace Corps. There was also a commercial on TV at the time. And the commercial said something along the lines of, if anybody wrote a book about your life, would anybody read it? Kind of had that urge that I wanted to be able to say yes. At the end of my life, if I wrote about a, a biography, autobiography about myself, it would at least be interesting enough that a few people would read it. And I was not on that track. The Peace Corps seemed to satisfy Ray's biological disposition to serve. But when he was done, it didn't seem like enough. He could do more. He had to. What I did after I left the Peace Corps, and the Peace Corps, there's something called the third goal, which is after you're finished with the Peace Corps service, is bringing kind of part of the culture back to the United States with you, right? Theoretically, they're talking about bringing the culture of the country you were in home, but I decided to take that to another level and 
I was talking to my mom, and when she was in the Peace Corps, she created some of the language learning material for Tagalog and Cebuano, two different dialects in the Philippines. And I looked online, and oddly, I couldn't find it. Now, this is government material, right, since it was created by the U.S. government, so it should be public domain. It should be out there. It wasn't. So I contacted the Peace Corps, and they confirmed for me, yes, it is public domain. We just haven't had time to put it up on the web yet. So I requested all the information from them. I reached out to all the Peace Corps offices around the world. They sent me PDFs, audios, and video files, and I put them up for free on the web. So we now have over 130 languages, ranging from random languages in northern Kenya that are only spoken by 5,000 people to more the popular ones like English and Spanish. I reached out to the U.S. Foreign Service, so the State Department. I got material from them as well. Some of it's kind of dated. We, are, we have like check, check commands for artillery, but like the artillery that you pull behind horses. So I have a whole course on how to command artillery with horses in check on our website as well. But I put them all up on the website entirely free. You don't have to log in. You don't have to pay anything. And it's out there for the world to use. And there are two goals with that. The first one is, as I said, to kind of foment this kind of communication that I think the world needs now, right? If you want to learn Spanish or learn, want to learn German or want to learn Quechua, we have a course for you and you don't have to pay us to do it. Really, if you want to learn a language, you do need a tutor or to move to that country. But I know that's not affordable for everybody. So we've put this up there so that anybody can have high quality, free language learning material. And the second thing is some of these languages are being lost because they're literally only spoken by 5,000 people in the world. So our second goal is to keep these languages from being lost. Before this interview, I listened to a Hidden Brain episode on languages. One of the cognitive scientists said that when a language dies, it's the cultural equivalent of bombing the Louvre in Paris. The Louvre holds 3,800,000 objects and shows 35,000 works of art over 652,000 square feet as their permanent collection. That's just over 11 football fields. This is a collection of sculptures, paintings, drawings, and archaeological finds. It would take 100 days to see every single piece of art in this museum. That's how massive and culturally significant this building is. Losing a language would be losing all of it. When a language dies, we lose a piece of how we understand and express our existence. I will link to that episode in the show notes because it's such a good episode if you are a word nerd. So what Ray is doing is helping preserve so much more than just a collection of sounds and syntaxes. He's saving history, a culture, a perspective, and a group of people's grasp on how the world works. I had to know what some of the rarest languages that he's preserved were. There's a language called Zarma, which is from the northern part of Africa, which we're helping preserve that I know it's, there are not that many people there. There's Tutum or Tutun with an M or an N. It's spelled two different ways, also from Africa. Telugu, I believe, is from the South Pacific, as well as Tosog, which is from, I think, Yap. For those who don't know, Yap is like this random island in Micronesia. I mean, literally in the middle of nowhere. And we have a languages for that. We even have like languages for Maasai, which is not as rare, but it is pretty rare. So if you've seen the Maasai warriors in you know, National Geographic, the, the lion hunters, we, you can learn that language with us. So we have all these little languages, Sarahule, Ilongo. There was one, Ikpatan. I remember that one because I didn't know where it was from. And I was talking to my mom about it. And she's like, yeah, I've never heard of that language e either. So we opened up the course material. And yeah, it ends up being a Filipino language. We've never heard of this language and we're from that country. So that's how rare it is. The universe paired him with a perfect partner for his cultivation of languages. I'd always had this kind of little itch that I wanted to start a business, but I didn't know what. 
I had the kind of skills to run a business. My wife always wanted to start a business as well. She's a teacher, but she didn't know any of the business side of things. So it worked out perfectly. And we've been working together ever since. So 10 years ago, um, we've been married and business partners for 10 years now. We started our first brick and mortar language schools in Mexico. With three, It ended up being three branches before we sold it. And while we were doing that, we launched into online language teaching, which is our current business, LiveLingua.com. And we've been doing that now for 10 years. We're kind of one of the old hats at it. It was inspired by Mexican swine flu. So we, you know, we were running our brick and mortar language school at the time. We'd been running it for about a year. 2009, I believe, is when it happened. Um, for those of you who don't remember, Mexican swine flu was supposed to be this epidemic that was going to wipe out you know, a third of the population of the world or something, according to the news. So they were talking about quarantining Mexico. And our, we had this, our language school was based on foreigners coming to Mexico and learning Spanish in the Mexican culture. So obviously, everybody canceled and didn't come for a month. So actually, my wife was the one who had the idea of, hey, how about we reach out to the former students we've had who love their teachers and see if they'd be interested in taking classes via Skype. Within three months, we were actually making as much with our online lessons as we were with our brick and mortar language school. What we specialize in kind of on the administrative end at LiveLingua is pairing you with your perfect teacher. And we're actually really excited. We're going to be launching, we're working with a psychologist that's going to be working on learning, kind of we'll figure out your learning style if you're willing to take a five-minute quiz when you sign up with us. And we have an algorithm in the back end, which is going to help based on your learning style and what we know of our teachers and our historical thousands of students that have come through us. We're going to, you know, have a, a better way of pairing you up with a perfect teacher. As someone who used to tutor, I asked him why person-to-person -person language lessons was the ideal way to learn a language. Being in the Peace Corps, but also growing up overseas, I always understood it's not only about language because it's the reason why none of those apps are going to you know, really teach you a language, no matter what the commercials say. It's just not going to happen. You might have vocabulary, you might learn a few phrases, but you're never really going to learn the language. And the main reason is, is that they don't teach you the culture along with the language as well. You know, you can, you might know the word for dog in Swahili, but if you don't really, you know, understand what maybe is a dog friendly or they, you know, not looked upon favorably in the Swahilian culture, that will change totally how the language, how you use the word dog. The apps won't teach you that. And that's kind of the importance that I got out of my life experiences, including the Peace Corps, which led me down this path. We're actually contributing to the kind of communication around the world, which with the politics of today, globally, um, in the U.S. and globally, I think communicating with other people is more important than ever. Because you're learning the languages. You're learning that there's actually more, in, we have more in common than we have that separates all, all of us. I mean, we were just in Morocco. Um, I grew up in the Middle East. I mean, the average person in the Middle East wants to, and the you know, Middle East has a bad rap in the United States right now, but the average person in the Middle East wants to go to work every day, come home to their family, have a food, and have a roof over their head. No different than an American or a Mexican or a Japanese. I mean, that's exactly the same thing. You might have politicians that are more extremists. But the average person in these countries has much more in common with the average person in every other country. And that's what learning a language in them will help. I never thought about how learning a language could be seen as a humanitarian effect. That taking the time to learn the basics of someone else's mother tongue helps them be seen. Languages not only help us communicate, but understand someone else's perception of the world. Grammar structures help us see why some cultures are so orderly and others are so lax. Some languages have no future tense. Others don't even have a linear concept of time. 
It's another way of seeing the world through a completely different lens. If you ever get bored of your own existence, just learn a new language. You'll realize you have an infinitesimally small understanding of what is going on. Language is an exchange, a compassionate one at best. But we don't all have time to learn a new language and want to share the skills we already have. Anne from Venture with Impact is working on just that. Her organization pairs individuals who want to work abroad with volunteer placements where they can use their skills. They can live abroad without putting their career on pause. Her origin story to create a better world also comes from within, but in more malignant ways. When I was teaching, I was running with some friends someday and I fell down and had a ground mal seizure and was rushed to the hospital. A couple of weeks later, I had found out that after, after the emergency room doctor came in on the day that I had my seizure with tears in her eyes, later found out that I had been diagnosed with anaplastic astrocytoma, which is a form of, of brain cancer. So that was very shocking because I was only 23 years old at the time. This life or death experience galvanized her to think about her greater impact and what kind of influence she wanted to dedicate her life to. No matter what it was, it had to have travel. College and university, I had the opportunity, I was very lucky to spend summers abroad working with a few different international organizations. I realized how the most enriching experiences I've had have been, especially when traveling, have been when I've stayed in one place and met local people and attempted to learn the local language. So I decided to quit my job teaching and just move abroad. And so I moved to Peru and found a position with a nonprofit organization there. And that's when I had the idea for Venture with Impact because I had noticed that colleagues and um, friends and family, they had the desire to travel more and also make a social, more of a social impact in their current positions, but just couldn't do so financially. Or, you know, they wanted to continue developing professionally and didn't want to sacrifice their their careers. So that's where the kind of the idea for Venture with Impact is bo- was born. Why not come up with a, a way for professionals to continue working for their jobs, but also have the opportunity to travel and give back? Yeah. So then after developing relationships with nonprofits in Peru, we actually launched our pilot program there in January of 2017. Basically, we bring professionals in groups of five to 15 to cities abroad we set these groups of professionals up with everything that they need to work remotely for their jobs back home for a month. And in their free time, we plan cultural events and activities, as well as match them with a skills-based volunteer project that aligns with their specific skill set, as well as interests and the needs of our partner organizations in each of our locations. I'm curious why our need to help shows itself in different ways. What compels us to assist certain communities instead of others? I would like to think that people just want to help, which I truly believe that Anne does. But unfortunately, there are power systems that are historically attached to helping developing nations. My conversation with Anne prompted some flare-ups in my mind about white saviorism. If you're not familiar with that term, it refers to people from typically Western countries who are white coming into a developing nation and volunteering their time with locals who are typically not white. 
These volunteers build houses, provide running water, and take selfies with local children. It originated with missionary trips throughout Africa and has now morphed into a strange subsect of conspicuous consumption. Flying all the way to Uganda to build a house is way more environmentally detrimental than driving to your local soup kitchen. But it's like better for the grams. It also perpetuates a story that these countries are poor and need rescuing, when each country is vastly more complex than a singular adjective. Typically, the volunteer is the one who benefits more and tends to exploit the local community for their entertainment. The volunteer will collect a few tender stories and take some photos with school-grade children, but they eventually get to return back to their comfortable homes, which is where they pontificate to their friends and family about the awakening they had while leaving an emotional hurricane for the locals to clean up after. The volunteer story is about the volunteer, not the people they served. The locals tend to become a backdrop. However, I do understand that many of these overseas communities need assistance because of government corruption or instability. So these charities and non-for-profits do come in to fill a void. If I'm going to criticize white saviorism, I need to call out the systems that have put it in place. Well, I guess that could actually be traced back to the European colonizers oppressing these communities centuries ago. Oh, good God, this is so sticky. Now, one of the reasons I didn't want to do the Peace Corps was because of the whole white saviorism thing. And they don't handle sexual assaults well either, but that's another story. I didn't want to get swept up in the unbalanced power dynamics that can happen when Westerners volunteer in developing countries. I wanted to give back to the country that I was a product of. So now I want to unpack this phenomenon as objectively as I can because I am a white person. But I did spend the whole intro of this episode describing my experience while working in Portland. So maybe this whole episode is just seen as virtue signaling. I don't know. I don't know. But I had to address this tricky power dynamic that most volunteers probably don't set themselves up for mentally. And honestly, I probably wasn't either when I was first applying to AmeriCorps. But talking about it is one way to be aware of its looming presence. I have a lot of reading on white saviorism that I'll plug into the show notes. But I wanted to give Anne space to reflect on this situation and what she does to be mindful of the white savior complex. In all of our programs, we always have local people assisting us. They always provide great insight and cultural insight. And having local people working with us is, is really important. No, we really haven't had any issues with people feeling that they are the authority. All of our professionals have been so humble and wish they could do even more to assist. Working and listening to locals is the number one way to prevent white saviorism making sure that the locals' needs are vocalized, represented, and heard. It's not always that easy, but it focuses on the individuals who need help. I wanted to hear a time where Venture with Impact had a profound effect on a local. So one of our great partners in in Medellin, they're called Enable Medellin, and they provide prosthetic limbs to Colombians that have been affected by the conflict. One of the Colombians that they, were, they were working with, he had, he had lost both his arms from the elbow down. 
because of mine explosions, I believe. And he was incredible because he had no use of his arms for maybe 20 years. And he was still able to dress himself to do almost everything on his own. He had figured it out. He could even text, even though he had no fingers. And, but he really, one of a couple of things he struggled with, one, he could not use a key to open his own apartment. And then also he just wanted to, you know, have the option of having limbs, not maybe all the, all the time, but at least sometimes. So Enable was fitting him with two prosthetic arms they create these prosthetics out of using 3D printers. And the prosthetics are much more advanced to what is available, currently available in Colombia. Although they were providing these limbs, they weren't providing training on how to use them. So we had a physical therapist working with them in March. And so she came up with a few different resources that both the patients or the, the beneficiaries of Enable were able to use as well as the organization to train their volunteers in providing assistance to their beneficiaries. So now he is fit with these prosthetic limbs and he's able to do exercises that will like assist him in learning how to better use the prosthetics. So, I mean, that's just one individual success story. I also wanted to hear how the volunteers the individuals coming in to share their skills were impacted as well. In Thailand, we had a woman and she actually brought her six-month-old and her almost three-year-old with her to the program as well as her mother. And she had undergone a divorce, oh my gosh, just, you know, five, four or five months prior. And I didn't know this until later on in the program, she shared it with everyone and she's actually had an abusive relationship. We had coincidentally matched her with an organization that assists Thai women that have undergone domestic abuse. So the organization is called Wildflower Home. The woman, they come and live at Wildflower Home and they learn their different skills. But it was just very impactful for her to be able to speak to these women and, and you know, inspire and help them after, you know, with that, what was similar to what they had both gone, all gone through domestic abuse. And she came out of it saying, feeling somewhat lucky because domestic abuse is such a, it's pretty culturally ingrained in Thai society. Thailand is, has one of the highest rates of domestic abuse in the world for, for women in particular. So I think that she felt a bit more empowered just by being able to help these women. And um, I think that was, you know, very personally impactful for her when she left. You know, of course, she also really assisted the organization as well. And then finally, just her being able to know that she can, she can travel and work remotely with her kids. She has her own consultancy. That's, so that's not something that she's never done before. I think that she realized the independence that she, she was able to have through the experience. Travel gives us an opportunity to be more compassionate with each other. We see people as humans instead of stories in a pamphlet that need running water. Some helpers have their eyes on the whole world and want to make an impact as far-reaching as possible, while others know exactly where they want to focus. Both are honorable. Kat from De Manos Con Amor knows exactly where she wanted to help. Kat's family is from Honduras and she grew up visiting there. 
But it wasn't until she was in her teens that she started to realize how much more her tiny New York home had than her family back home. So I grew up going to Ndudas all the time. And since I was little, I would have childhood friends that I would always play with. And to me, they were just my friends. And I wouldn't, I didn't notice the differences between us until I started going there as a teenager. And I started realizing, like, I think then it started to click, like, wow, Honduras is such a poor country, such a poor country. The poverty levels are crazy. And I would start registering more, like, what I was seeing. And it's like, here's a house made out of, like, cardboard boxes. You know, here are kids who are, like, five years old working, like, selling tortillas. You know, and all of these things started clicking. Now, Honduras does not have a great reputation, and Kat became more cognizant of the issues that infested her parents' homeland. Gang violence, drug trafficking, murder, rape, kidnapping, the corruption of the police were things that the people she loved so dearly were living in fear of every day. Honduras is considered one of the most dangerous countries in Latin America, and their major cities are some of the most violent in the region. I'll provide all of those stats in the show notes. I wanted to know how she perceives Honduras in light of these horrific stories that we hear on the news. The people are beautiful people. I think the people always try to help each other. I think they always try to, like, be as lively as possible, despite their circumstances. And I think that applies to most third world countries, because what happens is that they don't they don't have anything else. They have each other. And because all you have is each other, you just focus on being happy, enjoying each other's companies, talking, like seeing the other, this enjoying the simple stuff of life. She sees so much potential for growth that she knew that she had to be part of the process. Soon I came up with the idea, like, all right, like, I have to give back eventually, you know? And I think a lot of it was because my mom raised me as a single mom. My parents got divorced and she worked so hard to make sure that my sister and I, like, got the education that to, like, make something out of ourselves, right? And I owe all of my success to her, to my mentors. I had so many mentors growing up in high school through this program called Minds Matter for low-income, high-achieving students that really guided me. And I was like, now, now like I graduated college, like I have a corporate job, quote unquote, I've, I've made it. And I was like, I only made it because of all of these people that supported me, because of all of these opportunities. Because otherwise coming from a low-income background and being Latina, like sometimes the odds are against you, right? And it's more people expect you to fail than to succeed. So I knew that I wanted to start something. And I was like, I used to stop myself because I would be like, "Mm, I'm going to wait until I'm older to do it and have more time, or I'm going to wait until I have more money. And those were my excuses. And then one day I was like, "Mm, screw it. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do it now. And we're going to make this work because I know I can make this work. And honestly, Adrian, I think I was meant to start this nonprofit. And I think the universe really wanted me to because the name came to me. I didn't, there was never like brainstorming names. It was like, no, the Manus Con Amor was the name. 
I don't know how I came up with that. It just happened, which means from hands with love. And to me, that just made so much sense because the business behind it is that we buy products from women entrepreneurs in Honduras, and then we sell them here. And then the profits go back to the students in to the students in Honduras. So it's a cycle between the women to students. And we're just the middleman that is trying to make this all work. Kat has found a way to thread together multiple needs of her community, as intricate and vibrant as the embroidery being sold. Women sell their crafts, make profit, and that money is then recycled back into children's education. When money is in the pockets of women, they invest more in their communities. And when education is accessible to children, they're given more opportunities, able to make more money, enrich in their thinking skills, and it prevents them from joining gangs. Education is and always will be the equalizer. It is the crux of social justice. I asked her why she considered this to be the best way to support both communities. For me, I wanted to support women entrepreneurs because I knew that sometimes what happens is as a woman in a Latin American country, especially one like Honduras, there's a lot of misogyny. It kind of like disempowers women, right? And I didn't want that. I wanted to remind women that one, they don't need a man and you don't need a man to empower you or to support you. And that's why sometimes what happens is that if you're in an abusive relationship, but you don't feel like you have the financial stability to be on your own, sometimes they stay within those harmful relationships. And my mom was in a harmful relationship, but thankfully she didn't care. And she was like, I'm going to leave and I'm going to make it work. Right. And I wanted to give other women that confidence that they would be able to make it work on their own. And that's why women entrepreneurs was like that. That to me was like the obvious. And then what happens is that the profits are going back to students. To me, students like children in general are our future. And I want these students who have the best education possible, even if they're coming from low-income families, just because I know that having the best education helped me so much and was life-changing. Because when you have an education, you're just so much more exposed to the world. You understand the different opportunities out there. And you stop limiting yourself when you have an education. It empowers you to go after more things. So that's why... The thing that we do is that we don't give handouts. So I don't believe in just distributing money because I don't think that addresses the issue at hand. What I do instead of is give a hands up, which is why we work with the school and we partner with the school and we see like, hey, what's the issue and how can we help with this issue? So for example, the first issue that we dealt with was that for our partner school was that the roof was falling down. And we're like, all right, before we focus on the education, let's focus on the safety because this is a school of over 600 students. The government's not helping. So let's focus on this. Once the roof was done, we're like, all right, how can we actually improve the education here? And that's when we decided to sponsor an English teacher because right now English is offered at private schools. Private schools cost six to $10,000 a year, which unless you're a wealthy family, you're not going to have access to that. And also one in every five hundreds live in extreme poverty. So it's, not, it's just not going to happen. Although her family is from Honduras, she still comes in with a Western mentality. 
I asked her if she's had any resistance from the community and how she's avoided the saviorist mindset. I think what happens with that is that sometimes, right, you have to remember people also have pride and ego. So when I go there and I'm like, hey, like my family's from Honduras, they get so excited because they're like, they started seeing me as one of them. It's easier to connect with people when you share the same language. There's a sense of like trustworthiness. So I think the best way to avoid that is honestly like like communicating with the people that you're trying to help. Like you don't you wouldn't want anyone to come and help you without having a conversation because you're gonna know what you need best. So when we went to Honduras, like we weren't like, hey, we're gonna give you an English teacher because what the hell? Like obviously one, they needed a roof roof first. Second, like we're like, is this something that you think would be beneficial for you? Like, let's talk about this. But you have to see them as your equal. You can't start thinking of yourself as better or more of an intellect than them. I wanted her to tell me a time that she saw a direct positive impact and appreciation from the community. I think one of the most beautiful moments was this past August. We went to school and we invited all of the parents to come. And we didn't think they were going to come because one, parents have work. Right, most of them have multiple jobs, and two, like the principal prepared as mentally. They're like, he's like, hey, like we're gonna try to invite people, but just know that because of circumstances, some people just can't come. We're like, all right. The whole school ended up being filled up with parents, and it was mind blowing. And it was something that we spoke to parents, and the purpose of our visit was to talk to parents and see how they were feeling about the program. And one of the parents came up and started talking in front of everyone and was like, I used to come to the school as a student when I was a little girl. And she's like, now my nieces and nephews are here and now they're learning English, which is something that I never thought was possible. And I know that we could never afford. So for you guys to give my nieces and nephews that opportunity is like everything to us. And that just... It was beautiful because one, it was like the community is supporting you. And to have the community support you, right? Because you could want to do something, but if the community doesn't support you, then it's not going to work out. Does the community support you and believe in this and like want this to happen? It makes you feel like, all right, we're doing something right here. Kat was helping a community that she sees as her larger family. But the people we help don't always have to be blood-related. Evita Robinson, the creator of Nomadness and Audacity Fest, was obsessed with traveling in her youth. I had traveled abroad right after college. I graduated in 2006 and was in Paris about six weeks after I graduated doing a filmmaking workshop with the New York Film Academy. And that was kind of where like the whole travel bug situation started. And so... It was um, after living in, in Paris for a little bit and bridging art with travel and just like this childlike curiosity that I've always had and that never left. I was also able to live abroad in Thailand and train my Thailand as well as Niigata, Japan. I asked her why she couldn't stop when she started. I think travel is addictive because it's like getting a tattoo, right? And I say that because like you have this fear of getting a tattoo 
you know it's going to hurt on some level, but then you get it and you're like, you know what? This is not that bad. And, and that's why, like, I think people start getting more and more tattoos. And so it's kind of like, it's an entryway. It's a gateway drug, right? But it's a gateway to yourself and to other cultures. And that's just simply undeniable. Like, you can't have a connection with people in another place and be like, you know what? I'm good. I had this experience right here. Like, I'm done. Like, it doesn't work like that. We're humans are, are creatures of habit and community and connectivity by nature. You can't even fight it. And so I think travel is that on steroids, you know, it's, it's a cultural and personal connectivity that you cannot deny. And as you're, you know, experiencing and getting doses of other people's culture, you're also like peeling back your own, you know, skin to see what's underneath you as well. And, and there's a metamorphosis and a growth that, that happens. And as long as you're open to it and not scared of it, it, it literally transforms people. And I think that's where a lot of the addiction comes in. So Evita started documenting her travels and putting her stories to art, mainly for herself, but she also noticed that there weren't many other travelers that looked like her. I started to like just videotape my life and and put it on Facebook and realize that there was like nobody that looked like me that was really out there doing this at this point in time. There were travel bloggers, but I was just kind of getting into that space. I come from like the TV media space and I wanted to just kind of insert myself in this area, but also really just authentically tell stories, tell stories that were abroad because I was going through like really weird shit and like new stuff and, you know, things that I knew back home, nobody had ever seen or experienced before. And it was really just about like, okay, how can I encapsulate these in some type of vignette or video or whatever, and be able to like produce these in a way that I could bring and push out content to people to really inspire them, you know, but also, also, you know, pay homage and, and give space to the experience I was having, you know, honoring it. Evita needed a community. Her family wasn't travelers or understood this nomadic lifestyle she was exploring. She needed a place to connect with others around the travel experience and what it was like to be Black abroad. I created a community around travel because I needed it myself. I really answered the call. This is why I trust myself with a lot of the decisions that are made with no madness because I am the demographic. I started because I was, you know, solving problems that I was having around needing community when there just weren't even platforms for it back in 2011. And now there's a bunch of black and brown travel groups, but it's just like, you didn't see, we weren't as visible as we are now. Like Instagram wasn't even around when I started a lot of this stuff and was like living out in Japan. So technology itself has just like changed and has leveled the playing field, especially with like visibility and representation in our demo. But for me, it was like, I came home from living in Asia for almost a year and a half and like was going through travel withdrawal, was going through dengue fever, was broke, was like in a long distance relationship that was like going to shit now that I was home. And I didn't understand that because we were good while I was abroad. And I was going through reverse culture shock for the first time. And all of that shit was hitting at the same time. And I didn't have a community of people. Like I'm not following anybody in my family. You know, I didn't have a ton of friends that are all international travelers. Like now, like none of that shit was set up, none of it. And so I needed community because I needed it for myself first. And once I saw that there was no real home for this, that's when I realized that community would go. But I tell people all the time, like, 
no madness could have stayed at the hundred people that I threw in there and I would have been none the wiser. I didn't know that I was answering such a big call. I didn't know I was creating a business. I didn't know I was creating this like worldwide movement. I didn't go into it with any of this shit in the trajectory. It just happened. The funny thing is there's like this joke that we have in No Madness that like once you've joined No Madness, your entire Facebook feed becomes about travel. Like you don't even really like talk to your regular friends and family anymore. And it's kind of true because the truth of the matter is like, they are my lifelong friends now. And I do consider a number of them family members. You know, they've been for me. They've been here with me and through shit that some of my family members have not. I think that no madness is the type of community that actually blurs that line. There's some travel communities where it may not run that deep where there is a differential, but I'm going to be honest with you and no madness, that line is extremely blurry. And these people have become my actual friends and have become my actual family. You know, I've been invited to weddings. I'm like, you know, honorary, you know, God, God travel mommy to some of their kids. I've attended some of my members funerals. Like there's the line is like non-existent for me to be quite honest. It's, we operate a bit different. Her small 100 people has created a global community and movement, and it's taken on a life of its own. And now Evita has created group trips so the community can engage face-to-face and deepen the bonds that they've created online. It depends on where we're going. Our trips are wrapped around themes. So we have like Zen in Zanzibar, which is going to be all around the feeling of Zen, you know, like spa treatments, yoga, we have freedom in Johannesburg where the itinerary is wrapped around freedom from the apartheid museum to the Nelson Mandela house to celebrating new years at Afropunk. We have taste in Tokyo, which we're partnering with one of our nomadist members who also happens to be a chop champion and is also like an essence eats. And we did Thanksgiving dinner last year at the James Beard house. And she was the featured chef, Eris Johnson. And so it's like, it's a whole foodies itinerary to really eat our way around Tokyo. So Each one literally has its own DNA. And at this point, about 30 trips thin, we have such like concrete relationships with a lot of, you know, locations that, you know, it's more authentic and more homey. Like when we go to India, we are in the streets of Jaipur with families in Jaipur. We're not at like, you know, the palace's board of tourism, you know, constructed holy festival. Like we are in the streets of Jaipur on the motorbikes, you know, with the people that live there and, you know, being fed by the families and hanging out with the kids in the neighborhood. Like it's a more authentic and like immersive type of uh, travel experience wherever we go. That's really what we, what we look to do. She has created a cycle. By going on group trips, she's able to connect her community while economically fostering the communities that they're exploring together. I asked her to share a time where she saw the greater impact of her work on a local level. One of the things that we do when we're on our trip in Zanzibar is we actually spend a day volunteering at this technical like computer school in Stonetown on the island called Militia. We go there for the day. They put on like different theater things for us and stuff like that. And this is like a school that doesn't have all the amenities. Like it's like a couple computers for everybody in the school. Like they're really forward thinking and progressive with not a lot of resources. And so we had definitely told everybody to kind of bring some supplies that you may think about donating and all this stuff to the school. And we ended up like buying out all these supplies locally from a small store that was on the side of the street. But 
we ended up making connections and individual connections with different students that when we got on the bus and we were getting ready to head back to the hotel, we all kind of sat there for a minute and we were like, how much is it for them to get through their schooling here? And literally one by one, everybody on that trip got off the bus, went back into the school, we went to the office and everybody sponsored tuition for a different student that they had had a connection with that day. It wasn't asked of us. It wasn't on the itinerary. It was something that was extremely organic and ended up just happening in the moment. And it was such a powerful message to the community, again, that we're not just taking, we're giving back. This is reciprocal here. And I just love, I love when things happen organically. But when it comes to nomadness and even what the brand stands for, it's community. So we literally have no business doing a trip anywhere in the world and not actually embracing and engaging with the community. It literally would be against everything that we represent as a brand and everything I represent and hold dear as a leader. So it is got to be a part of our DNA to be immersed somehow in the actual community and to show homage where they are. Like even with Audacity Fest in Oakland, when I went out there in February and we were scouting out the locations for Audacity Fest, I reached out to So Oakland. I reached out to Black Bay Area. I reached out to Kumi of I Love Being Black. And I was like, yo, these are the nights that I'm going to be here. This is a spot that I can come. I want to treat you to drinks. Let's have a conversation. I want you to school me on what's dope about Oakland. I don't live here. I'm not trying to bring a New York experience to Oakland. That's not what this is about. You tell me, I am the student here. Who do we need to have involved? And would you sit on a panel and moderate or be a speaker? That's how you go about acknowledging a space that you're in. It's not, you know, colonialism, you know, like it's, you go there and you're like, hey, you're here. You do so much here. Like, how can we bridge with you and how can we partner with you, but also show you all in the best light. And that's literally what we did. And that's what we do everywhere we go, international or domestic. That's just how we rock. But her impact then feeds back into itself like the growing and decaying of a robust garden, she is fertilizing the space that nourishes her. I feel like every six months at least, we have people that are just like, because of you and the community, I've gotten the balls to like put in my um, two-week notice and I want to go travel or I want to start a business or I want to become location independent with, or I want to pack up my family and, and go. Nomadness also like low-key moonlights is like a black like small business incubator. I mean, it's one of the residuals of being a part of the community itself. We've had so many businesses come from members who met at meetups or on nomadness trips. We've had relationships happen. We've had people meet in nomadness and have babies and get married. Like there's literally endless, endless. I've had people in the tribe as well as send private letters to me telling me, you saved my life. Your community saved my life. You know, it's like, I mean, we're talking from the top down. There are some people who have this travel lifestyle embedded in their DNA and their family is not a support system. And they found their support system in us to the point where they decided not to take their life. Like it's, it's real. That's why I'm so protective of this community. That's why I'm so, I'm so in it. I'm a member as much as I am the leader of it. Like, I love these people. I look out for these people. I fight for these people. When we think of travelers or even look at a brochure, 
The models are typically, if not always, white. This is similar to when you're on the ground. In my experience throughout travel, I rarely see black travelers. I asked her why representation of her community is so important. The representation abroad is so crucial because like if we rely on media messages, you know, as a black person that our country is ushering out to the rest of the world, like the the idea of what it's like to be black, let alone a black female is like over-sexualized, catty, like we're fighting, we can't get along and, you know, all of these things. And as for black men, it's about being hyper-aggressive and all this other shit. Like we, I say this in the TED Talk, like when we go abroad, every black American traveler has this like responsibility and this like silent acknowledgement that they are either perpetuating or diffusing biases that are placed on us by negative media depictions that our country has ushered out to the rest of the world. Like that's literally how I put it in my Ted talk. And that shit is so real. Like we know that we're representing more than us when we go out and we're one of the few demographics that looks at life in that way. It's like, we almost take ownership for like the other black people that we see around when we're in foreign countries and we acknowledge one another because a lot of the times, even in our own country, like we walk around feeling invisible. And so when we can take that abroad and flip it and make sure that we're representing not just ourselves, but our culture in a light that's got these people like, yo, like, yeah, I've seen this in movies or I've seen this on the news, but these people are not like this. Like we're not monolithic. We're super multifaceted and we have all these types of interests that everybody else does, but like, you don't see this shit. Cause even still today, mass media doesn't represent us. Right. You know, like in 30 years of programming, Travel Channel is just about to have their first Black travel host, Kelly Edwards. She's a Nomadness member and a good friend of mine. It's not in our heads, you know? This is real shit. Like, marketing in general, like, I'm a big keynote speaker and kind of, like, the face of the diversity conversation in travel, right? So I get booked to speak at a lot of boards of tourism, destination marketing associations, and, you know, all of these different places because like, this is still an issue. We are still not visible and many marketing materials that they have that they're pulling out, that they're putting out to the, to the world. However, and we're talking just like US stats now, we're about $55 billion you know, expenditures annually in travel for the US, the black demographic. So it's like, you want a piece of this pie, but like you don't represent us. And I say in my keynotes, I'm like, you can, you can absolutely market to the black demographic in travel and not alienate whatever other demographic has been working for you. Like you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I promise you, it's not going to alienate it. It's going to open you up to a whole other demographic that is clearly spending money in the sector. So the, the representation goes deep. You know, it's not just in mass media and social media, but it's also like the industry itself needs like an overhaul and an honest discourse with itself. Evita has looped together the bonds of her immediate community and their global needs. By bringing her community to the world, she strengthens the bonds of her people, the local economy, and brings diversity to contrasting corners of the planet. This infinity loop only brings greater awareness, more voices heard, and richer experiences for everyone. I think we make the world a better place because we expose it and we are exposed to it you know, tolerance is a big issue that we're having, especially right now in the United States. So for us to come out of our homes 
and to be able to go abroad and expose ourselves, but also be exposed and have that cross-cultural exchange, that in itself is changing the world. It's changing perspectives. You know, we leave a, you know, monetary imprint. We leave an emotional imprint. We leave an inspirational imprint wherever we go. You know, and the thing is, it's not that we just drop there, we do these things and then we bounce. Like we keep in contact with people. I have attachment issues in the best of ways when it comes to these trips and my community. So it's something where like, we're also giving to the economy and we know that. And we, because we try to focus on a local level and it's not about like all these all-inclusives and all this other shit, we're actually like leaving money in the hands of the people that are there. And that's important to me as well. So it's a, it's a longer withstanding relationship. We don't just come in, kind of drop a tourism bomb on them and then leave. No, we try to foster the relationships and actually keep them going. I think the common denominator of all of these guests is that they've created positive feedback loops. They've put cycles in place that constantly reinforce the micro and macro communities and nudge us forward towards a safer, more accepting place. They live through the grit, the endless setbacks and pivots that this line of work has, but they know it's more than just them and it's important enough to keep striving. I think the greatest aspect that they all hold is that they're all focused on sharing stories. Storytelling is a form of immortality whose stories we share live on. We still talk about Homer, Shakespeare, people whose bodies have decomposed centuries ago, but their impact carries on through each passing generation. That's because we kept their stories, which is what my clients at the Day Center in Portland were overflowing with. Most of these men were like pomegranates, hard on the outside, but filled with juicy sweetness within. It was easy to judge these people at face value, making assumptions about who they were. But I learned to contradict those thoughts when they popped into my head, because I was proven wrong time and time again. Once I was working in the kitchen because I found it to be my personal sanctuary from the frenzy in the main rooms, and calmly measuring out the ingredients to a cake when a client came and leaned on the window where people order food. I'd never seen this guy before. His face was weathered, he had tattoos instead of real sleeves, and they were shown off in a leather vest with tassels around the shoulder. He looked like he got kicked out of Hell's Angels for being too cruel. He scared the shit out of me. He asked me what I was baking. Chocolate cake, I said hesitantly. Ugh. I love baking, he said. I cry every time my souffle falls in my apartment. Ugh, and I too was crestfallen. I hated that my brain had taken me down this path of, ugh, this person's no good. And I thanked the universe for reminding me not to make assumptions, that I could be better than that. Then I handed him a spoon filled with cake batter, and he licked it off with joy. But as the year ticked on, What I saw more of wasn't my clients being mean or griping about the world. It was actually filled with a lot of tenderness. There was a beautiful desire to play, a generous need to keep things light, to make jokes and art and sing, to give gifts and to help each other. These men had been through so much and still had the perseverance to make life better, make each day a little easier. They looked towards their future and weren't dragged down by their past. This was a place of respite for them, where they could be safe, accepted, and breathe for a moment, and for their stories to be shared. 
All I had to do was sit and listen. Now that we have been inspired to help others, we will also see what change has happened within ourselves. On our next episode, we're growing. We will talk to travelers who have had an emotional growth spurt that can never be trimmed back down to size. Next time on Strangers Abroad.